From the Catholic Diocese of Sioux Falls Office of Adult Faith Formation, this is the Prairie Rome Companion with Dr. Chris Bergwald. Hello, this is Dr. Chris Bergwald. Welcome to Prairie Rome Companion. Before Holy Week, I had promised that the next episode of Prairie Rome Companion would be an interview with Father Martin Lawrence about Holy Week and the Easter Triduum and so on. Unfortunately, uh, I shouldn't have made that promise because schedules around that time for priests are especially can be complicated and we weren't able to, to coordinate the interview in the end. Uh, instead, now I'm going to uh, present for you in this episode a special episode of Prairie Rome Companion, and the next few episodes are special episodes with another Faith for Life presentation or presentations in this case. This first Faith for Life presentation is from or by Mike Epler. Uh, Mike Epler is the youth minister for the Diocese of Evansville, Indiana, and he is professor of humanities at Southern Indiana University as well. And his presentation, which is in two parts, this, this episode and the next, is entitled Jesus, Not Just for Sunday Mornings Anymore. So as, as you listen to his presentation, you'll see that he's going to be speaking about recognizing the presence of Christ uh, throughout our lives. And I hope you enjoy this special presentation. And again, as always, please feel free to give me any feedback. Uh, by, via email is the easiest, cbergwald at sfcatholic.org, C-B-U-R-G. W-A-L-D at sfcatholic.org. And now uh, I introduce you to part one of Mike Epler's presentation, Jesus, Not Just for Sunday Mornings Anymore. When I begin, or as we begin this morning, I, I kind of want to tell you a little bit about myself and uh, a little bit about my experience, because uh, as we'll see this morning as it, as it unfolds, and then again this afternoon with, uh, with Dr. Barstad, uh, experience is critical, absolutely critical to living our life of faith. I am a husband and a father, first of all. I have a great wife, Mariah, who uh, I met uh, in 1990. It was September 22nd, 1990. It was 4 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. I can't remember her birthday. I can't remember our anniversary. I can't remember anything else significant. But I remember that moment because it was such a significant moment. And you never forget the moment that you meet your lifelong and your best friend for the first time, right? Isn't there no greater moment when you meet the truest friend you've ever met for the first time? But you don't know it in that moment. You just know you've met someone fascinating. But then as time goes on, it unfolds. Mariah and I have four kids. Four distinct, unique, and different children. We have Noah, who is 13, going on 45 or 46. He knows everything. Uh, he just turned 13, so now he knows even more. And uh, at age 13, I know a lot less. And uh, from my own experience, I know that I will be the dumbest man he has ever met in his entire life until he turns about 24 or 25 and has his first child, and then I will get smart again, because that's what happened to me with my father. I have Mark, my second, who is infinite need. That is all he is, is infinite, infinite need. Mark is about five foot four. He's about 115 pounds. He is just this tank of a human being at age 10. He is a, he's a big oversized Labrador retriever that has no muscle control whatsoever. He destroys everything just by his physical presence. 
And, uh, and whenever he is uh, really angry at somebody, you know, he's not getting his need fulfilled, he starts destroying other things. And then I have to throw him on the floor and tackle him and start kissing him and, you know, laying on top of him, trying in some way to fulfill that need. And it never does. Never does. He is never satisfied. He is never happy. I have Luca, who is seven. Luke was, was born Luke and baptized Luke, but Luke went to Italy one time, and now Luke thinks that he is an Italian. <laughs> Luke will only eat pasta. He will not eat macaroni. He refuses. He says it's too American. He will only eat pasta. Uh, Luke is, a, is an interesting guy, but he is nothing but just kid. He's just, rah, he wants to lift things up and flex his muscles and run around and play uh, soccer. In fact, he refuses to call it soccer. He only calls it football because that's what the Italians call it. And then my wife and I, uh, four years ago, four years ago next week, uh, went to China and we adopted our fourth and uh, I think our last, but who knows, uh, Mary Catherine, uh, who was uh, an orphan in a, uh, in a city called Fuling in China. And Mary Catherine at age four is really the one who's in charge of the house. Uh, and she bosses everybody around and she tells us what to do and when to do it and it's amazing uh, my kids and, and even myself we we always do whatever she tells us to do I don't know why uh, but she has taken control of our household and okay why not our kids today our young people today and, and that's what I'm interested in because that's what I that's who I work with our young people but our young people today live in an interesting environment a very interesting environment and even a place as great as Aberdeen has been affected by this environment. You know when we were growing up here in Aberdeen and by the way this is my first time here but I feel like I've lived here all my life because I come from a place very similar, very similar in size and ethnic uh, makeup, people, the church with the train tracks down the middle and you never cross from one to the other. I come from the same city, I come from the exact same place, the Irish on one side, the Germans on the other. For some reason, we got to marry each other. I don't know why, you know, as I come from the same place. But in, in, a, in a city like Aberdeen, when we were growing up, it was simple, wasn't it? It was a simple place. And, and if you made a mistake at, at one place in the city, by the time you got home, there was this telephone chain that followed you all the way home. And everybody in the town knew exactly what you did before you got home. And then there was hell to pay. Right? Remember that? Remember those days? And, and, and you lived in an environment where everybody knew everybody and everybody knew what was going on in everybody else's life. And the thing about that was with our kids was the kids were so hemmed in. They were so connected. And, and our faith and our life were seamless in those days, weren't they? We, we did First Fridays. We, we did the Way of the Cross on, on, uh, uh, during the Fridays in Lent. We still do, you know? Uh, we, we, we prayed the rosary on a regular basis. There was this, there was this seamless um, uh, uh, lack, there was this, this seamlessness, if you will, of our life and our faith, and everything revolved around two very particular tables. Our kitchen table, and the altar. And the two were indistinguishable at certain points in our life. Is this a good description of, of the way we grew up in Aberdeen? Okay, all right, I just want to make sure that I'm not off on that. Our young people today are in a different environment because our young people today have at their disposal things that we never saw, things that we never knew could possibly exist. And all of their contact with reality, all of the young people's today, their contact with reality, with what's real, what, with what's in front of them, 
is not the kitchen table and it's not the altar, it's their thumb. They think with their thumb. They play PlayStation huh? with their thumbs. They text message each other on their cell phones with their thumbs. They, um, uh, they use their thumb to listen to their iPod. And it seems that more and more today, that, that environment which was outside of us is being invaded by something that's uh, out there, with something that doesn't match with what we experienced even in our, in our own life. In fact, I have to admit for myself, I have the same experience at a certain level. I've got that phone. I send those messages. I get distracted by those things when I think with my thumb. Today, if we really want to use this time well, if we really want to use our time in a very useful way to kind of overcome those things that invade into our consciousness, those things that come in from the outside, if we want to use our time really well today, um, what we want to do for our first step for this faith, this faith for life, is to establish a method. We want a method. And today I want to propose a method for today. A method is a way. It's a path. It's a, it's a proposal of a particular uh, road that we might go along. Today, we want to look at a way of using a method to be certain about our faith and to be certain about the way that we talk about our faith. We want to, we want to have a, a certainty in the path that we're on because this is serious business. And the path that we always knew, the path that we followed when we were younger, is not different. It's still the same path. There's no question about it. But the environment has changed. The, 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 the circumstances have changed. The path is the same. So this morning, what we want to do is we want to look at what method are we going to use today? What path are we going to choose this morning? And I'd like to propose one uh, for us today for our work. The first step, if you will, of a method, of a, good, of a solid method, a Catholic method, is to look at ourselves. I want to look at myself right now, right now and in action, in every circumstance or, or every moment. How do I, how do I see myself as a, as a person in that environment? How do I look at things? How do I pay attention to things? This is an important first step because I'm paying attention to my own experience, to my own life, to the things that are unique and particular to me. So the, the, first, the first step uh, that we want to take with our, with our method is to really look at our circumstances. Now I can, I can kind of speak about maybe my experience in Aberdeen, although it's less than 24 hours, because I have a similar one in uh, southern Indiana. I'm from southwest Indiana, right on the Kentucky and Illinois border very Bavarian, German, Irish, Catholic corner of the country. So I can look at that, and, and it's similar to yours, but really, your life, your experience is what's the fascinating thing here. That's the most important step for this journey. The second part of this, the second aspect, having looked at our own life or looking at our own life for this method, is to look at the heart. And that's really what I want to spend a little bit of time with in this first section this morning, is the heart. My heart. What is the heart? What does this mean when someone says the heart? What does it consist of? What is it made up of? What is it made for? When I'm speaking of the heart this morning, 
when we talk about the heart, we want to get at it and look at it and examine it from the point of view of, uh, of the, the way the Bible looks at the heart, the way the Old Testament talks about the heart, that, that laying in one's bed and musing on something, to, to, to ask for an answer, to cry out in the wilderness, that Old Testament sense of heart. Let's look at the heart and what it consists of. When I usually speak about the heart, a lot of times with young people, they always say, oh, we know what you mean. You're talking about emotions. You're talking about feelings. And I always say, no, not at all. Emotions are important and feelings are important, but we have to, in the first step, put them in their proper place. We have to put our feelings where they really belong and, and make them a useful thing. When we're talking about the heart, we're talking about all of the factors that, that, that constitute what it is that make us human beings. And feelings are an important part of that. Feelings in the heart are like a pair of glasses, you know? If you wear them correctly on your face, you can see everything. But if you wear them on top of your head, they make no sense. And if you wear them upside down, well, they sort of help, but not really. And if you've got fingerprints all over the middle of them, they're smudged up and they don't make any sense. Or if you're missing a lens, it doesn't help very much. So feelings are, are really useful, but if feelings drive the way that we approach the heart, then we can be confused by them sometimes. Young people today are driven by their feelings. They're driven by their emotions. And the media, the television, advertising, the school, everything is meant to elicit to draw out of them, to cause them to feel something. Always with feelings. And I'm interested in that. It fascinates me. But that's not all of the heart. Feelings are very important, but it's not all of the heart. The heart, if we really look at what it is, is it, it is the needs that we have that demand to be fulfilled. This is the heart. The heart are, is the needs, or is comprised of the needs that we have that demand to be fulfilled. Let's talk about those needs. I want to talk briefly about what those needs are because this also can be a bit of confusion. Um, I got a brief example I want to show you. This is a description of the heart because this is what, this is what the environment is telling us the heart is. And, and so it's real important that we look at what the environment is saying to us. This is a graph. And, and on, this, on this graph right here, this is intensity that goes up. You know how intense something is, how, how, how much more intense it gains over time. Intensity something gains over time. And this is time going this direction right here. So we've got intensity over time. This is kind of the graph I'm going to use. What is a need that every human being has every single day? What do you need every day? What do you think? Food. Okay, let's start. Well, air is good, but, but that's a little bit too precise. Let's start with food, right? You get up in the morning and you need food and, and, it, and it starts to rise in intensity very quickly, right? You need food and you need it right away. What happens after you eat? Are you still hungry? No, it goes down to zero, doesn't it? And then, and then after time, it starts to build again, and you feel hungry again, and it goes up in intensity quickly, and then you eat, and it goes back to zero. 
This is called appetite. Right? What's another thing besides food that we need every day that we demand as a human being? Sleep. Exactly. You can't not sleep. I tried it once. It was not a good idea. Uh, in fact, I did very stupid things without sleep. And uh, I often tell my kids, try it if you want, but you will go nowhere with it. You must sleep. Right? You can't not sleep. And when you go to sleep, it goes back to zero, doesn't it? You can't sleep all day, but you can't stay awake all day either. It's an appetite. It's something that you need. You have to have it. What else? <clears throat> Friendship is a little more complex than that because friendship, uh, it is a need, I agree, wholeheartedly, but, but it does something else to you uh, in, uh, different than food or, uh, or sleep. Water, drink, yeah, what's that? Is it water? Yeah, exactly. Thirst is an important appetite that we have. Are these things necessary? Yes. Are these things vital? For sure. The majority of what our young people and what we see on television, in the newspapers, uh, uh, in the internet or whatever, is at this level. It's at this level. They tell us that this is desire. They say that this is what will make your heart happy. Uh, translate from, uh, from uh, food and water and sleep into boat and car and house with 2.2 kids and a dog named Ralph, right? Isn't that why kids go to college? I always ask kids, why do you go to college? It's not to learn the meaning of the universe, for sure. It's so that they can get a good job. And I said, but what can you do with a good job? And they say, so that I can uh, get married. So what? And they say, well, this is so I can have a family. I can have a house and I can have a family. And then, it's always something else. It's always something else. And it's always at the level of appetite, right? But here's the heart. Let's get at the heart. <clears throat> There, there are certain needs, and friendship is an important part of this, there are certain needs that a human being has that, that are not so obvious as food or water or sleep or whatever at the very beginning. And those needs are things like truth or beauty or justice or the good. Those are really the key ones right there. Truth and beauty justice and the good or affection a affection is a very powerful thing uh, friendship this this friendship that we have a affection comes from the latin affectus which means both an embrace uh, a hug like i give to my mark when he's driving me crazy or it's a punch to the heart it's a blow in the heart affectus means that you're struck something moves you something challenges you okay so <clears throat> You're going along with your life, you're moving along with your life, you're eating, you're sleeping, uh, you're drinking, you're purchasing things, you're, you're taking care of your appetite, and then this need for beauty enters in. And it's not as intense, is it? It's not a, it, it, you can live today without something beautiful. You can live today without truth. You can get by, right? But you're going along and this need for something beautiful moves along very slowly in its intensity, but it moves. And then you see the Grand Canyon. Huh? How many have seen the Grand Canyon? Okay, all right. Or you see uh, Devil's Tower, a little more proximate and close to home, right? For me, Waldrug, huh? or uh, the, the, cor the Corn Palace, you know? I, you, see something, you see something beautiful, you see something fascinating or interesting, right? Uh, a girl, 
a uh, beautiful girl, you know, she strikes you. She really puts a blow to your heart. You see something beautiful. And, and what happens? Does it go back to zero? Does beauty send it back to zero? No, it does the opposite. In fact, if you see something beautiful, it goes straight up through the ceiling. It goes up 150%. If you're searching for the truth and you get just a little bit of truth, it blows you wide open, doesn't it? It makes you want truth. More truth than you can possibly imagine. It's the same for justice, and, and justice is the hardest of them all because justice is as impossible as it possibly can get. There is no justice, it seems. But when you get just a little taste of justice, it really makes you want justice all the time. Justice and mercy. The heart is the demand for these things, for truth and beauty and justice, the good, and affection. This is what makes a human being a human being. And the reason you know that you're a human being is that, is that when, you, uh, when you encounter beauty, it makes you want more. It blows you wide open. I teach at the University of Southern Indiana. And uh, I get kids from Southern Indiana, but also Northern Kentucky, uh, Southern Illinois, from all over. And I teach in a public university. I never mention Jesus, but I always bring him with me into that classroom. The way to Christ is through truth and beauty and justice. But I'll get to him in a moment. I like him a lot. But we'll talk about him uh, in a few moments. But in the class, what I do with the kids is I propose to them beautiful things. So we listen to beautiful music. I show them beautiful pieces of art. I talk about beautiful poetry. I introduce them to those things that really are a blow to the heart, are a real strike to the heart. So one day this kid came up to me after class, and he, he was a little concerned. He was from northern Kentucky. He was a little concerned, and he said, I don't know what you keep writing on my papers, and I've been writing Use MLA, and he didn't know what I meant by Use the Modern Language Association style of citing on your paper. So there was a conversation about that. But we got to the end of this, this, this discussion between the two of us about how to write his paper correctly. And he said to me, it was the most incredible thing, he said, he said, that music we listened to today, and I said, yes, he said, that was the most beautiful thing I have ever heard in my entire life. It was Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, the first movement. He had never heard it before in his entire life. A junior in college, he had never heard Beethoven's Fifth. And the first time he heard it, he was telling me, I've never heard anything like that before in my entire life. It blew him wide open. It made him want more. In fact, this guy still writes me on a regular basis and asks me to give him a list of music that he can listen to. And I'm constantly saying, listen to this, or listen to this, or listen to this. He's becoming a human being because he's opening his heart up. My father, God love my father, he's a crazy man, knew nothing, absolutely nothing once I turned 13. Knows everything now that I have children. My father, when we were kids, would make us listen to uh, music. And uh, he would make us identify the composer, the piece, and the movement. This is what he would do with us. And he would terrorize us with this, you know. And we got a familiarity with this music because of this. I do the same thing with my boys. Uh, I, am, I am like my father. The way I do it in the morning is uh, my kids want to play PlayStation. 
You know, on the weekends, Friday at 5 o'clock until Sunday at 4 o'clock, you can play PlayStation. You get one half hour a weekend, and then the more chores you do during the week, dishes, mowing the lawn, whatever, you get more time at PlayStation. And on the way to school, I will put in a piece of music, and if you can name the composer, the piece, and the movement, all three, you get another half an hour of PlayStation. My kids know everything. I'm telling you, this moves them. My father would play Chopin's Raindrop, the prelude, the raindrop, and he would play it over and over and over again when I was a kid, and it would drive me crazy. It's like, Dad, why do we have to listen to this? And he would say, because it's beautiful. And when I finally heard that one note over and over again, that raindrop, I really understood what my father was saying. That one stupid note that kept going over and over again would open us up. Open us wide. So the heart, what we're really talking about is desire. But desire at the level of beauty. Desire at the level of truth. Desire at the level of justice. Desire at the level of the good. And desire at the level of affection, of, a, of an embrace, and also of a, of a blow to the heart. As a matter of method, from experience, think about those moments that your heart were blown open, that they were widened out, that, that, that something met it like this. Three weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was at Holy Rosary Parish in Evansville, and it was one of those spring afternoons. We have spring in Evansville right now. It's not spring yet here, but in Evansville, it's 78 degrees and flowers and the trees are blooming and it's, it's very spring right now. I'm from the south, more or less, you know. And, and three weeks ago, we had one of those spring storms roll through, and it was, it was incredible. Uh, I was with, uh, with my, my little ones. I was with Luke and Mary Catherine, and we walked out of Holy Rosary Church, because I work for the church, and, and right in front of us was this double rainbow. It was the most gorgeous thing I've ever seen. Two rainbows, side by side, kind of back to back with each other, that had, that had appeared after the, the storm had blown through. And we stood there. We stood there in front of this double rainbow, and, and, and I remember saying, I, I said to the kids, to, to Luke and Mary Catherine, seven and four, I said, how great God is and how beautiful the world is. Because a good friend of mine, a priest, said that once or had, the, had said that to us once. But it's really true. How great God is and how beautiful the world is. And, and as we stood there, the, the rainbow started to dissipate. They started to go away. And Mary Catherine, the four-year-old, said, do it again, Daddy. Yeah, but isn't that really the truth of our heart? Do it again, Daddy. And you sit there and you go, I can't do it again. Not in a million years I couldn't do that again. I could never plan a rainbow. I could never plan that instant when I'm in front of my children and I could say how beautiful the world is, how great God is. I could never, ever plan that. I, I, it's not like I sat at home that morning and I said, well, you know, today, today. I will plan a storm, and the two rainbows will appear right after that. And at that very instant, as I have those two children with me, I will say to them how great God is and how beautiful the world is. And they will say to me, do it again, Daddy. No, you can't do that. It's not possible, right? So here's the, real, here's the truth of our heart. Here's the real truth is you don't make these needs. You can't create this desire in your heart. It's not up to you. 
You didn't make it. It doesn't come from you. You can't say, this morning, I think I'll get up and I'll love. You can't do it. It comes from somewhere else. Not of your making. This is the real biblical definition of the heart. Truly, from a deeply human point of view, the Old Testament knew it the best, really wrestled with this fact. I don't make these needs that are within me. I don't create them. But I know that they exist, and I know that when I'm in front of these needs, they're blown wide open. I intuit it. I sense it. And here's what happens. Is, is, is when these needs are blown open, when they're, when they're made more, when, when I see something beautiful, like that double rainbow, you know what happens to me as a human? Maybe this is your experience as well, but, but my experience is I lack. I want more. I'm like my mark. I get a little bit of something, and now I want everything. It, you know what I mean? I, I had a little small lack. I had a little tiny lack before I saw something beautiful, that double rainbow. But now I've got this huge lack. I've got this enormous lack. I've got this lack that's as great as, great as the mountains, this lack that's as infinite as the ocean. I've got this lack that's is as incredible as, uh, as, uh, as the Grand Canyon itself. And I didn't make it. That's the thing about it. I didn't create that. The heart. The heart is when you can say, I. I. That's how you know you, you really are a human being. You say, I. I lack. I want. I search. I'm looking. I'm, I'm, I'm on this path. I. I know I exist, I know I'm a human being, but I didn't make me. I didn't create myself. This, this ability to say I, this, this ability to use your heart to say I, is a human thing. How many have laid on their back and looked at the stars? One of those beautiful nights when the cold front comes through, you know, and every single star is available. How many of us have laid on our back and wondered what it would take to grab a star? Remember that old, that great old film, A Wonderful Life? I love that, that movie. I watch it every Christmas. I, I, I never tire of the movie. One of my favorite scenes in the entire movie is when uh, George is uh, wooing Mary and he says, uh, what do you want Mary? You want the moon? You want the moon? I'm going to throw a rope around it and I'm going to lasso it and I'm going to pull it down here and I'm going to give it to you. Eh, isn't that really what the human condition is? Isn't that the human heart? Because, because we want something we really cannot get. We want the moon. I want to give you the moon and I want to give you the stars and I want to give you everything. But I can't do it. It's just not possible. I lay on my back and I look at the stars and this guy, Victor Hugo, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, great guy. He, uh, he wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame and a few other cool things, but he wrote a book of poetry called The Contemplations. Victor Hugo said, uh, he said in The Contemplations, a little poem called The Bridge. He said, uh, if I lay on my back and I look at the closest star, he said, how many arches 
would it take to build a bridge to that star? You know? How, how, how much would it take to make a connection to that thing that made these things that are within me? A little bit about the heart. Two more things about the heart, and then, and then I'm going to let you kind of process it for a little bit. The heart is objective, and it's infallible. And these are two very interesting points. People will argue with me about this, but please feel free to argue. The heart is objective, and the heart is infallible. Here's how it's objective. You don't make it. It comes from somewhere else. You don't make your heart. You don't make the needs of your heart. It's made by another. And so, because it does not come from you, it's not a personal taste, it's not subjective, it's not your opinion, it's not the way you think about it. It comes from somewhere else. So it's objective. It's, it's made by another. And the second is, it's infallible. And people will argue with me on this. It's okay, please feel free. It's infallible. You have a heart size, if you will. You have a particular capacity to your heart. Here's a great example. How many like shoes? You like to buy shoes, you're interested in shoes. Shoes are a great thing. Okay, I got a few of you like this. Okay, all right. This is a great example. Clothing also fits for this description, but shoes are an important one, you know? It's Christmas, just after Christmas. You go to the shoe store, 75% off on all shoes, right? This is a great moment, isn't it? Okay, so you go into the shoe store to buy the shoes, right? And uh, uh, you find the perfect pair of shoes. Oh my God, they go with everything. They go with your dress, you go with your outfits. The perfect pair of shoes. You can't beat them. And they are 75% off, right? The only problem is they are one size too small. What do you do? You buy them, don't you? You buy them anyways, don't you? Because they're perfect. They're perfect, but they don't fit. Right? So what happens when you wear a pair of shoes that don't fit your feet? You get a blister. You get an ugly blister. Right? A reminder of the fact that it does not fit. This is the definition of an infallible heart. Our heart is made in a particular size. And what we do with our life is we go around trying to fit it into things that it doesn't fit with. And what happens to our heart? It gets blistered. Hmm? Isn't this, this, this the description of a lot of the things that we do in our life? We go through life, especially young people, we go through life trying to find what fits our heart, ultimately to be blistered, because it didn't fit, it didn't correspond, it wasn't the correct, it didn't match up with what I was looking for, but I tried it on anyways, and now look what happened, right? I mean, isn't this a description of, of what goes on in our life? Because those who argue with me about infallibility usually are at that level. They say, well, it can't be because people make bad choices with their heart, and I agree, but that doesn't change the size of your heart. The capacity of your heart is like your shoe size, right? I'm getting tired holding that. I don't know why I keep doing it. In this sense, in this sense, when we look at our heart and we look at its, its objectivity, we didn't make it. Huh? Somebody else made the size of our heart. 
and it's infallible, meaning it has a particular size. For us, really, with our life, uh, the way we live our human life is, uh, is an experience of looking for what corresponds to it. Looking for what fits with it. What fits my heart? What matches with it? And this is what we uh, spend our life on, isn't it? We go to college to try to find the, the studies that we're interested in. We find the right boy or the right girl that we'll marry that'll fit us. Yeah, and that's the search, isn't it? To find the right person or the right vocation. We're constantly, with our heart, comparing things to our heart to see if it fits. The heart, and this is my last point with the heart. The heart, if I can say I, I, I'm a person. I, I search, I look, I demand, I want. If, if I can say I, then what I want is a you. I need a you if I'm an I, because I can't live it by myself. I can't live like this alone. If a, if, a, if a boy washes up on a deserted island at age five by himself, and he's able to you know, survive on seaweed and coconuts, you know, he kind of gets by, at a certain point, at age 15, 14 or 15, that boy is going to intuit that there is a need for something else. Huh? He is. And not just, uh, not just uh, more coconuts or more seaweed. There's got to be something else. And so a boy of 15 who's been raised by himself on a deserted island will set off to explore the island. He's going to look for a you, for someone else for another person that maybe will correspond with him, that maybe will fit his heart. The description of Moses in the Old Testament is the description of this you, which is the burning bush, right? This description of you, which is Jacob wrestling with the angel at the edge of the river, and they fight all night. I love that story. It's one of my favorite stories. Remember that story, Jacob? Headstrong, you know, proud, knows everything, cheats, manipulates, works his way. He's wonderful. He's one of my favorite people in the Old Testament. He's got a great heart, an enormous heart. And, and, and in, with this enormous heart, he meets this angel. He meets God on the edge of the riverbank, and everybody's crossed the river, and he's the last one to cross, right? And they start to fight each other. I mean, really fight each other, wrestling, throwing each other to the ground, punching each other. I mean, really, this is the description of the heart, isn't it? And, and, and Jacob, while he's wrestling with this you, finds himself with a broken leg. You know, the you that he's wrestling with punches him in the leg and breaks his leg. And, he, and at that very moment, Jacob flips that you onto its back and he pins him. He throws him on his back and he, and he holds him down and he says, tell me my name. Yeah? I and you. Tell me my name. Tell me who I am. Because isn't this what the heart says? Huh? Isn't this the description of the heart? Tell me who I am. Tell me my identity. Tell me the content of my heart. And, and the you that Jacob wrestles with says, you are Israel. I wrestle. I struggle. This this relationship, this corresponds to what Jacob is made of. You are Israel. I struggle. I wrestle. If 
If there is no you, if there's no burning bush, if there is no angel to wrestle with, if there is no Ten Commandments, if there is no uh, possibility that there is this you that I can struggle with or wrestle with, then these desires of my heart, the need for justice and beauty and truth and the good and affection, these desires are a cruel joke. They're a cruel joke. It's unhuman. It's the most inhuman thing there is. And this is the description of the world right now in the West. They don't believe that there is a you. Culture does not believe that there is a you. Or if there is a you, he doesn't exist. And so these desires of the heart are a cruel joke. It's not fair. It's unfair. So what happens? What happens today for people who have these desires, because all human beings have these desires, it's objective. We all have them. We all want truth and beauty and justice and the good. And we don't believe that there is someone who can satisfy them. We don't believe that there is a you who can correspond to these. And so we just get angry. And people try to kill the question. Right? They drink. Uh, they do drugs. Uh, they work a lot to escape. They don't look at their children. They don't pay attention to their wives or their husbands. They, they bury themselves. And they try to kill these questions, they try to kill these desires. They try to flatten them out. This is what we do today. And I see it in the kids. Uh, the kids who have these intense desires and, and they don't think that they can ever be fulfilled by a you, by another, by another person. Um, they just try to remove the question. And that's why kids drink. Uh, a lot of kids drink for that reason. Because it kills this, uh, this need it removes the, the, the desire, at least in my experience with kids. And I spend a lot of time uh, working with them on this level. So, this morning, well, today, what we want to work on is the heart. The heart and this method. Is it true what I'm saying? Really, don't believe anything I'm saying to you. Don't trust me. I'm dangerous, you know. See if it's true. Test it for yourself from your experience, from your life, is what I'm saying really true? Let's today look at, uh, look at ourselves using the needs of our heart as a criteria. Does something open us up? Does something strike me? Is it really true that I need these things and that I'm looking for something that corresponds with these things? Augustine, St. Augustine, who I really love, Augustine and Benedict. These are my two patrons. <laughs> Augustine, because he is pure desire, just like what we're talking about. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O Lord. You know, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard in my entire life. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O Lord. And Benedict <laughs> Work and prayer. Work and prayer. Restless hearts. Between those two poles, I can live my life, I think. I can, I can, be, a, I can be a man. I can be a father and a husband. But that's me. That's, that's my experience. In any case, 
In any case, Augustine, with his, with his claim, with his statement, our hearts are restless. Our hearts are stirring within us until they rest in you. This is the description of humanity, of human beings who are alive. I've got, I've got one last little point, and then we'll take a little break and, and do, some, do some work. This is an important point, and it really shows the transition that we're going to take uh, after the break. Uh, it's a little small introduction to the, to the next section. I'm going to use a metaphor at the beginning, and then I'll kind of give you the, the point after that. If I were to give you a series of mental images, words, right? I'm going to do this in just a second. What I want you to do, as soon as you figure out what all those words mean in their totality, is tell me what those words, what their meaning is. Okay? Does that make sense? I'm going to give you a series of words, a series of images, and then as soon as you figure out what all those words mean together, scream it out, yell it out. Tell me that you know what it means, okay? Cut grass. Hot dogs. Beer. Huh? Hang on. Oh, you're ruining it. Hang on one second. Baseball bats or bats, gloves, a ball, a pitcher on a mound, pinstriped uniforms, right? Baseball, right? See? Yeah, all these great things. If, now, why did you know that? Why did you know all these are the things that put them together? How do you know that these are all the, the pieces that put together this image, that, that gives it this meaning? How do you know? Experience. You have been to a baseball game. Now, as I described this, where were you? Which field? Tell me concretely, concretely. What, which one? In the Metrodome. Very good. Where else were you? Here in Aberdeen? Anybody? Huh? I was at Bossy Field in Evansville, the third oldest minor league park in the country. It's second in age only to, uh, third in age only to Wrigley, and uh, the Big Green Monster, I think, is the other one, you know? But I was at, uh, at uh, uh, Bossy Field, the Evansville Otters uh, in Evansville. Look, if you were to take a bat, a leather glove, balls, the catcher's mask, catcher's shins, you know, all these things, and put them in a big duffel bag, right? Put them in an airplane and fly over the deepest part of Africa and chuck the bag out the door. And it lands in the middle of the Serengeti in Africa. And here comes a guy who has never seen baseball before in his life. He sees this bag and he opens it up. And what is the first thing that he thinks? Not baseball. He's never seen baseball before. He has no idea what baseball is. Right? Because he doesn't have any experience of it. He uses it as a tool, as an instrument. So he takes the bat out. He uses it as a cudgel, as a weapon to hit animals with, I guess. You know? Maybe he puts a sharp stone on the end and makes an axe out of the bat. He uses the glove to catch uh, fruit as they fall out of the trees. You know? uh, maybe he uses the ball to throw at the trees to knock fruit down. Right? He's got all these instruments and he has no idea what they mean. Yeah? When you put them all together, he has no idea of the synthesis of all these instruments, all these things. This is the way that humanity lives. Because if the guy in Africa wants to play baseball, what does he need? He needs one person who says, I know how to play baseball. Right? And says, get your friends together and we'll lay out the bases and we'll take these instruments, these tools, 
and I'll teach you how to play baseball. Okay? Does that metaphor make sense? Do you understand that? There was only one man in the history of the world, in all of humanity, who knew how to play baseball. And his name was Jesus. There's only one man who knew how to play baseball. Now, if I could take this metaphor a little further, the instruments that we have is our heart. This is the greatest instrument. As human beings throughout all of history, we have used the heart and these instruments in our heart for all kinds of things. We've used it to be mean to people. We've used it to be nice to people. We've created institutions with it. And we have destroyed institutions with it. The human heart in all of history, in all of time, has used the human instruments, reason, feelings, all of it. We've used it in a variety of ways. We've used it as a cudgel, and we've used it as an ax, if I can use the baseball metaphor a little further. But there's one man at a certain point who taught us how to play the game. The meaning of all the parts, the meaning of all these pieces. It's fascinating. This guy, I, I keep, the whole thing today, I have to tell you, is not anything of my invention. There's a great priest by the name of uh, Father Giussani, Luigi Giussani, who taught me all these things, and I have to give him credit. Uh, but, but he gave probably the best description of this, uh, this uh, experience that I'm talking about uh, a few years ago in a, in a book called At the Origin of the Christian Claim. Show it to you. This is really beautiful. He, he did. He said, he said, imagine humanity like this. He says, it wasn't there, and then it was. You know, there were, there were no human beings, and then there were humans. And humanity, if you take this, you know, on a, on a graph kind of description, a model, humanity goes in one direction towards a destiny, an unknown destiny. And he says, this is a great description of human beings in path, in journey, on a, on a, on a trajectory, going somewhere into the future. And at various times, various people live on this human History, right? Does this make sense? People, you know, people are born, even our own life, we're born and then we go somewhere. We go on a, in a path. If you're an I, a human heart, and you've got these tools, then you intuit that there is a you. You say, well, there's got to be something. There's got to be someone who can answer me, who can answer my needs. And in human history, they called this God. They called this person God. The ancients always referred to this need for another as God. I put X up here because uh, X is an algebraic expression, isn't it? It means something exists, but we don't know what it consists of. We don't know how much there is of it. So, uh, so we know X exists, but we don't know what it looks like. We don't know how much there is of it. Really smart people, Muhammad, uh, Buddha, the Shinto, Tao, Confucius, really smart people tried to build, religious geniuses have tried to build a bridge, just like Victor Hugo to the star. They've tried to build a religious bridge to that X. Religious geniuses like Muhammad says, Muhammad says there is one God, and I agree with him, you know, and he says, and it's Allah, you know, and, and he names him, and, and he says he exists, but he doesn't know what he consists of. 
He doesn't, he, he, because Muhammad at no point in the Quran says, God looks like this or God acts this way. He says, this is how we act in relationship to that God. The whole Quran is like that. It's not the same thing, but, but this is a human thing. And, and, and it's, it's, it's worthy. It's, it's a very worthy human thing. The, the Buddhists, the Buddhists do not describe God in any of their texts. They do not say what God is or how God acts or what God looks like because he's unknown. He's an unknown variable. But they say, here's how we should act in relationship to that God. Right? This is what they always say. At a certain point in history, at a certain moment in time, there is this guy who showed up. <laughs> This guy shows up and he says, he says, stop building your bridges to this unknown star, to this unknown God. Stop doing it. It's, it's worthy and it makes you human and it's a great project that you're involved in. He says, but you don't have to do it anymore. I mean, imagine this. If there was this huge open prairie, just like here, you know, here in South Dakota, there's this huge open prairie. And from each part of the prairie, there are groups of men and women trying to build a bridge to the closest star. How many arches? You know, and they're all trying to build their own bridge, right? Like Muhammad or Buddha or, or the Shinto or, or whatever, you know? And they're all trying to build their bridge. And, and everybody is working hard. There are great architects working on it. And there's foremen and there's people moving, you know, moving stones to build these arches, trying to build a bridge to, the, to this star, to this infinite. And then this guy, walking through the middle of the plains, says to everybody, Stop! Stop building these bridges. You do not have to build a bridge. He says, In fact, I will build a bridge for you. And then he says, I am the bridge. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so, what happens? Everybody stops building for two seconds. And they stare at him like he's crazy. Because he's either a madman or what he's saying is the truth. He's either crazy or he's really true. And then what happens? The foreman and the architects say to the workers, get back to work. And they do. They go back to building their bridges. But two guys, two kids, stop what they're doing and they follow this guy because nobody Nobody ever talked to them like that before. Nobody uh, spoke to them in this way. When they were with that guy and they were watching him and paying attention to him, he blew them wide open. He made their hearts be on fire. He was exceptional. Those two kids, one was 16, his name was John. When he was an old man, he wrote a gospel, some notes from memory. When he was 84 years old on an island, he said, when I was 16, here's what happened to me and my best friend, Andrew. The other was Andrew. Andrew was 19. He had just gotten married. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take a break right at this moment. And I want you to do some work for me, if you could. This is really useful for me. Uh, it helps me. During the break, let's take about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, is for yourself or in small groups, two or three, or with your spouse, if you'd like to do that, is... This morning, what we've done so far, the work we've done so far, is it true? Is it true? And if it is true, why? Why is it true? What, we've, what I've been pre presenting, what the lesson has been. Did it correspond to your heart? Did it, did it match with, with your experience?
In fact, be concrete. Talk about your experience with each other. This is a, you know, the, the concreteness of this. And then, uh, as you guys talk about this during the break, take the time to do that, um, is for, for each of the small groups, maybe each table, let's do it this way, each table is come up with a question from this first part. Write down your question that you have that maybe was generated at your table from this uh, first part this morning. Write that down. What we will do at the end of the day is we will take the questions and uh, we'll address them uh, in a question-answer session at the, at the very end with uh, Dr. Barstad and I.